More than ever, contractors need a vehicle strategy to capitalize on a growing federal market. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the Army has been testing technologies to let soldiers use their own mobile devices on Army networks. Now it's ready for a much broader rollout. Next week, the service will start Phase 3 of its Bring Your Own Authorized Mobile Device pilot. About 20,000 people will get access in the newest phase. Most of the initial users have been Army National Guard soldiers. Kenneth McNeil is the CIO of the National Guard Bureau. He spoke with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu about the latest development. Bring Your Own Device has been our flagship uh, initiative. Going all the way back to uh, when CVR, Microsoft Office CVR, uh, went away for the National Guard, we learned during the uh, operations and missions that we were doing in D.C. that this is, this is very important to have our traditional soldiers and airmen to have capabilities that they can put on their personal mobile devices, whether it's a phone, iPad, uh, it keeps us connected. We're now in uh, phase three. Uh, we went through phase two uh, about a year ago, and we're now in phase three. There's a total of 20,000 licenses um, that will be deployed for the force total, the big army, uh, the National Guard, and the Air National Guard. And so we have 5,000 licenses, uh, a little over that, actually. And we will be deploying these licenses starting um, 11 October. Now, what they did was all of the seniors, uh, the CIOs, we've already been onboarded. I've been using it now for a week. Um, this is my second go around using the capability. I was in the phase two pilot and some minor uh, improvements have been made, uh, but certainly it works great. I've turned off my government furnished device and solely using uh, this bring your own device, Hapori solution on my uh, personal phone. Um, And so we we see this as the future. Obviously, this is a game changer for the the National Guard community because leading up to mobilizations and and even after you have been deployed, uh, this keeps you connected. And we look at it as a cost-saving for the future also. Um, we've been doing some analysis on the cost of obviously, you know, buying government furnished devices. And we think uh, as we go down the road and, and, and look at this, we'll be able to save the department um, some funding. And we don't have all of that tied down at this point, uh, the exact cost savings. But just doing the, going through the analysis, we think that this, this will end there some uh, cost savings for the the department. And this is probably a bit of an obvious question, but maybe talk a bit about why the guard population is a, is a natural place to start this work and why it benefits the reserve compos in, in particular. Very, very good question. Because it, in our traditional guardsmen um, that have their other professions uh, that they're, they're in on a day-to-day basis, you know, not called up until it's time to mobilize for, some event or or a mission, they don't have government furnished uh, devices. So now you can stay connected between call-ups, between drills. Um, You now have on your personal cell phone or your iPad or whatever mobile device you're using, you are connected. And so with the active force, you're reporting 
to your headquarters or wherever you uh, report to daily, you know, whether it's in the motor pool or, or where, and, and you're on a computer, uh, a government furnished computer. And so there's a different population uh, for the National Guard and Reserve component for Compo 2 and 3. And so that is why we see this as a game changer. And the proof that this is actually will be, you know, very helpful. CVR gave us an example of how this can really help guardsmen because doing a call up in the District of Columbia, most soldiers and airmen that I talk with uh, when I visit, they they were using CVR. They had it on their their phones. They had it on their their mobile devices, their iPads, and things of that nature. You know, it, it wasn't that long ago when, you know, we'd ask senior DOD technology leaders, are we ever going to have BYOD in, in the military? And, and at least some of them would say, never happen. What's changed from a technology or culture or policy perspective to, to get you to where you are? Well, as you know, we, we constantly improve when it comes to cybersecurity and, and, and protecting the, the Doden and, and making sure devices that we're going to connect it, it, we constantly improve on that. And, and also the cloud. And so this is data at rest. So, um, you know, when we went through phase two and uh, with DOT&E, we had the red team uh, come out and really put this through its paces. So it's just improving the technology. And our, as our industry partners really step up their game and improving their capability to meet the DOD standards. And that's what's basically changed. So you, you, you know, you never can say never because technology catches up in the security, um, cybersecurity protocols, you're able to meet those. Since you're both a technology provider and a consumer of this, it, it sounds like, um, maybe talk a bit about what the user experience is like on, on the on the new BYOD solution versus the GFE that you, that you also have you said you shut the GFE off so you must like the new one well <laughs> well i mean as far as user experience uh, you know so far as it's been the same i mean so i can access everything that i need um my emails um i can uh use microsoft you know office i can use teams i've i've used and experimented with every app and capability that I would use on my government device and even my um, computer. So basically, I now have what I need uh, to communicate. If I want to do a Teams call, if I want to do chat, and of course, of course, my emails. So I have those capabilities that I, that I would use constantly when I'm outside of my office and, and need to access uh, the network. And, and I know you said you don't have the the potential dollar savings completely mapped out here, which is totally understandable. But but can you give us some notional examples of of the things that you will no longer have to buy in the future? Ideally, where where do those savings come from? Well, first of all, is it's it, you don't have to buy an actual device. So we understand that uh, you know, I, I, and I want to make this clear: I'm not saying that we will not in the future buy any. Yeah, sure. government uh, furnished phones. But if you are comparing the prices of how much it costs for a government mobile device, whether it's an iPad or phone or any type of you know, mobile device versus buying a capability that you're just paying for software, um, it, it, that's where we see the cost savings uh, long term. 
And the other thing that comes along with, with your mobile device is paying for the, the monthly uh, carrier fees. So there's a lot of costs tied to this. And again, I want to put emphasis on this. We're not saying that there would be no need for government furnished devices, but it would be a need for a lot less. And the key thing here is, you know, you will have a larger number of your force connected um, and, and with, uh, you know, having access to, to the government network. There have been policy concerns through the years with BYOD around things like what if there's a data spill? What if there's unauthorized information on, on someone's personal phone? Does the government need to go retrieve it or wipe the phone? Can they legally wipe the phone? How have you worked through some of those kind of thorny questions? Well, you know, um, it's data arrest. So it doesn't it, it doesn't reside on your phone. I mean, we're using the cloud. And so it's a difference uh, as far as something that's hardened on your phone, like a GFE, if there's an issue, now you got to wipe that device. Um, we're also working with DISA long-term as they look at, you know, how they're going to archive text messaging and, and uh, you know, looking at the future of, of how we do business when it comes to that. Realizing you can really only speak for the guard here, but fundamentally, is there anything about the technology that you're implementing here that, that, wouldn't work across the rest of the department? Does this seem like it's scalable to, to an enterprise that big? Well, we, we think it is. We don't see anything. And then you use the Army, for example, of course, you know, it's 20,000 licenses going out with this uh, Hapori uh, pilot that we're doing. Um, so this is going across the department. And also we're looking at uh, uh, 5G technology. So we're just, you know, we're looking at you know, where we are you know, right now today and where we're going in the future. So I think we we have a really good sample in this phase three technology, uh, phase three pilot to look at all of the technology that we really need to look at. What do you still need to learn out of the pilot process, you think, before this becomes, I don't know, production level or, or you know, scaled across across the broader army? Well, the big thing is user experience. Um, so. Uh, you know, from my user experience, it's great, but but I'm the CEO for the National Guard, right? So it, it really matters how the soldiers and airmen uh, view uh, this user experience. And that's what we're trying to get at. We're, we're going to really, just like phase two, but now our largest sample size, we're really going to get at their user experience because really is, that's what it's all about. Um, with the, obviously the technology is secure and we, we have all of that, but the, if the user thinks it's, um, not quite right, uh, uh, we, we would have to adjust. And so, so that's what we're really looking for. And, and I know you touched on this briefly before when you mentioned CVR, but it sounds like a lot of the stuff that the broader department had to do around the pandemic to increase bandwidth to the cloud in and out of the various DOD facilities probably helped a lot to, to enable all of this and laid the groundwork for it, I'm guessing. It, it really did. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And so we learned, uh, and, I, and I think the department just did a you know, tremendous job, you know, uh, when the COVID pandemic kicked off and we had to really adjust how we were doing business because of telework and everything. But a lot of lessons learned from that, and the department has stepped up their game. I give a lot of credit to the DOD CIO and Honorable Sherman and his team 
at really leading the effort across the board with the services and with the National Guard Bureau to really get at what we need in the arena of IT going going forward. I think that we're in a situation where we're not going to go backwards. I mean, we we still have across the department telework in place, remote work in place. So this just adds to it. So it has um, multiple uses, I think, for for the, the DOD as a whole. But those lessons learned w- was very helpful in how we invested in the network and and increasing bandwidth was really tremendous and is able to we're able now to benefit from that wanted to pivot to a, another aspect of your digital modernization efforts which is um the day before we're recording this big army announced uh, a new agreement with google to provide uh, their their workspace and email services to soldiers um talk a bit about how that works in the national guard how it's going to be used and and I mean, that's kind of a big deal. As far as I know, it's the first non-Microsoft email platform that's really ever been introduced into DOD. Well, it, it is a big deal. And we partnered with the uh, headquarters department of the Army, Dr. Iyer and, and Lieutenant General Morrison. And, you know, obviously, from an Army perspective, uh, we have our National Guard soldiers will be a part of this. Um, really, it, it's, it's to is to really bring, you know, our industry partners in, take advantage of, of you know, all capability across the board. Uh, we think this is positive. Uh, we look forward to the partnership with Google, but the National Guard, uh, we were involved in the decision-making process with the Army as they took a look at this. And, and we think that this is another capability that can help uh, going down the road uh, as far as uh, soldiers having what they need uh, with IT. And is, is this partly a cost-saving move too? Is it, is it more cost-effective to put at least some portion of your population on this new service versus buying them Microsoft 365 licenses? Well, we think across the board is really looking at, you know, multiple capabilities. Uh, of course, you know, I won't speak for the Army on, on the cost-saving piece because, again, that's being still being worked out. But just having multiple capability and being able to look at just not one industry partner capability out there, I think is always healthy to have multiple industry partners uh, invested in, in the uh, Department of Defense. So we we look at this capability as just broadening the capabilities already exist out there um, in, in industry um, for the Department of Defense. And just to be clear, that this new service will be kind of integrated into the the broader Army's IT fabric. That'll be connected to Army.mil email addresses, I imagine, right? Absolutely, absolutely. What else is What else is going on in your digital transformation journey that we should know about that we haven't talked about yet? So you know, we are uh, we continue to improve our domestic uh, support uh, for Silver Authorities capability. Um, for example, you know, we're, we're now involved in uh, hurricane uh, support efforts in Florida. We have National Guard capability that's uh, connected to first responders um, as, as National Guardsmen are supporting Florida um, from multiple states. Um, and so this is our mobile capability we, we take. And you know, our uniqueness is when we deploy to support a state, 
we have to talk to first responders. Uh, we have to be able to have communications with uh, uh, police, fire, um, our interagency partners, FEMA. And so we've just recently upgraded uh, our capability. We call GIST, our Joint Incident Site Capability, Communications Capability. And so now that has the latest technology and, and it allows us to continue to talk to first responders uh, during any um, event uh, that we need to support. And Florida is a perfect example. Um, we have, as you know, a number of guardsmen that have been supporting that operation and supporting the Florida National Guard. And that's going really well. That's huge because that gets at the the tactical side, I would call it, of what we do here in the in the National Guard as far as communications. We continue to partner with the Army and the Air Force on the Title 10 capability and, and being a part of new capability that's being deployed for the force. So the one thing that that, that I want to also highlight is I really appreciate visiting the, the program executive offices. I was just at POC3T several months ago and just the new technology rolling out and how the guardsmen, uh, how the National Guard is at the forefront of that new technology. Uh, we really are, um, we're not on the back end, we're on the front end. We really rep- appreciate the relationship with uh, uh, the PEOs and, and of course, uh, Headquarters Department of the Army, CIO and G6 office. Can I double back real quick on that joint incident communications capability that, that you mentioned? How does that actually work? Do you, do you need to deploy communication equipment to the local first responders as well, or does it fold into FirstNet or something else somehow? How does, how does all that? It, it, it actually, uh, it, the, the, the device itself is deployed to the area that's being supported, and it has bridging capability. It allows you to cross-band. It has a cross-banding capability. Um, that's used in the device and it lets you, you know, whoever's responding, it lets you tie to their radios. So this is a radio-based piece of equipment. And so obviously different agencies, uh, different uh, first responders from, you know, at the, you know, lowest level of a community, you're going to bring what you bring to the operation. And so with the cross-banding capability in these GISs, it lets you communicate. And this 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 uh, capability is not new. We've used it for a number of years. We just upgraded our current uh, capability that we have just to get the technology back up to the latest standards. Kenneth McNeil, the CIO of the National Guard Bureau, speaking with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career 
at the FBI, and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day jobs, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances Um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. 
But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly, you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done, no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish I wish and it was it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader too is to solve near term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we we don't always succeed in those long term goals or those you know sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. 
I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.